Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. This year on National Suicide Awareness Day, a Facebook friend of mine shared her mental health journey and I was touched. And I thought, wouldn't it be a privilege and an honor if she came and shared with us on Raising Equity? Because we're all about helping people understand themselves and others. And our mental health is a big part of who we are and how we show up in the world. And so I have with me today, Maya Petty. She's 20 years old and at the age of 15 was already engaged in activism. She took over STL Lunch, a program that served lunch to kids in North St. Louis. I met her in the streets of Ferguson, and I'm really honored that she's here with us today to share her mental health journey. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thanks for having me. I'm really appreciative of you for coming. And I mentioned the post that you made on Facebook for National Suicide Awareness Day. Mm-hmm. How was it to make that post? Like, did you feel nervous about sharing? Because it was beautiful. It really I, was. I would say I was definitely really nervous. Like, I was nervous about it to the point where I typed it and then I sent it immediately. Like, I did not, I did not reread it. That was like not a rough draft. It was like I typed it. And then I posted it and then I locked my phone. I was like, I'm not even going to reread it. I'm going to just post what I post. And yeah. Yeah. What made you feel so compelled to post it? Um, I felt like I needed to post because I, I don't know, reading other people's stories made me realize how far I've come and how much better that I feel like I've been doing. And so I felt like I needed to share with people my journey. Mm. And that's, I mean, it it really is a gift because so often people will share either when they're doing really well and things look like they're so great or when they're really struggling. Mm -hmm. And so for you to, to, to share and reflect on a time where you were really struggling and even attempted suicide Mm -hmm. and to reflect on the growth that you've made, I think is a gift for folks who feel like um, things won't ever get better. I definitely did not realize it would be received so well. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like I was not expecting what the response that I got, the feedback and everything. So what was some of that feedback? Um, Just a lot of people like thanking me for sharing, which I thought was, I don't know. I didn't think it was a big deal when I posted. I felt like I needed to post. I posted it really for me because I like to reflect and I like, that's just how, that's kind of therapeutic for me to, you know, just write things. And so I didn't really expect other people to get anything out of it for them to be thanking me for sharing it. Cause I was like, it's just, it's just me talking, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was not really expecting the feedback mm-hmm. that I got. I think so often with mental health, people uh, are scared to share or they feel stigmatized if they're struggling with their mental health. They mm-hmm. feel like they're the only one yeah. And so to have you openly share, I think probably it probably resonated with people mm-hmm. um, because I and especially with suicide, I found people are scared to talk about it. Yeah. It's almost like if they feel they feel like if they if they talk about it, that they might make someone do it. Well, I also feel like a lot of people um, and I was just I was just talking to my boyfriend about this. I feel like a lot of people are scared to talk about suicide because when you're younger and people talk to you about suicide, it's always it always feels like you're in trouble when someone's like, oh, do you have suicidal thoughts? And so you feel guilty for having those suicidal thoughts and you have so much guilt around, or from my personal experience, like I felt like I had so much guilt around feeling suicidal that I wasn't even focused on trying to not be suicidal. Like I was so focused on like feeling bad that I felt like this. 
rather than getting the help that I needed. And I feel like that's true for a lot of young people. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine that. Like, because um, oftentimes people get scared when mm-hmm. anyone talks about suicide, but especially young people, mm-hmm. and they have this attitude of like, you should be so grateful for life. Like, you shouldn't feel right? this way. Just the sun is shining. <laughs> right, right. Rather than like, actually, this is how I feel. And the reality is, we know in the mental health world, like millions of people ex- think about suicide, like have right. suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And to have those thoughts is one thing, but then to have like the ideation is what we would call it, like the plan, mm-hmm. the means, right? Like that is different than just being like, you know what, things would be easier if I weren't here. Right. And so to have when I think sometimes people get so nervous when people even just mention thinking about suicide that they don't stop to ask like, okay, are you just having a rough day and things are really hard and you're thinking about it? Or do you have a plan? Right. Do you have a way to do it? Have you set things up, given things away, written notes, right? Like real steps towards it. Right. But it's the problem is with the stigma around it, there's no room to talk about the difference between that. So you just don't talk about it at all. There's like no, I feel like there's not enough room for you to even say like, oh, I would, I want to be dead today. Like there's no room for you to say that. There's no space for that. And that's why people don't know the difference between like just being like, I want to die and being like, okay, this is how I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. So what I mean, what would you say to people who who would say, well, yeah, there there's no room for that because like that's being dramatic. You shouldn't say that you want to die today. That that there shouldn't be room for that because that's just being young and 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 dramatic. I would say that people, I think a lot of like the older generation should realize that our generation, like the younger people, a thing that we do a lot is we we joke. But the jokes are, like, serious. So we'll, like, laugh off things and be like, oh, I want to die today. Or, oh, my God, I want to kill myself. Like, people say that all the time. Like, I'm going to kill myself. And it doesn't mean that person's going to necessarily kill themselves. But I also feel like with our generation, there's some truth behind those jokes. And because we get blown off so much, we turn them into jokes. Mm. So because we don't have the space to, like, tell people who are supposed to be there for us, like, I feel like I want to die. Then we turn it into a joke and we're just like, oh, ha, 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 I want to die. Does that make sense? Interesting. Interesting. And so am I correct in assuming that like when people say that it would be okay to follow up and be like, is that really like, are you really feeling like that today? Or what would be the way to respond if you, if you really care and, and take that seriously and know that there might be some truth behind that joke? I say I would, I would follow up and say like, Hey, I don't know if you were joking earlier, but you mentioned something about wanting to hurt yourself. Are you, are you okay? Do you want to talk? Mm-hmm. But cause I do think those things deserve a follow up. Cause I know I say it all the time and like I said, as I'm joking, but like sometimes I like, I low key mean it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so like, I do think you should follow up. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, like, when did you first have thoughts of suicide? Um, when I was in eighth grade, I tried to kill myself. And that's actually right around the time where I got my diagnosis. Mm. So when I was 14. You were 14. And mm-hmm. what, what led to that attempt? Um, really, it was... With both of my suicide attempts, it was nothing... Like, there was nothing major that I could say really led up to it. I was just really... Like, I had been thinking about it. And then I was really manic. And then I just, I just did. And that's pretty much like, I wish I could say that there was like one thing, like one big thing that like led to it, but it was just literally like just little things just built up. Yeah. And then it often, it often is not always one major thing. Right. 
Yeah. And so you mentioned you got your diagnosis in eighth grade. Are you comfortable sharing your diagnosis? Yeah. Uh, bipolar disorder and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with bipolar, there oftentimes, if you're in that kind of manic phase, mm-hmm. you can be very impulsive. Right. Well, the times when you had your attempts, were you in that impulsive stage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because sometimes you kind of just like act just kinda, on things. Just kind of do it. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, oh, I have this idea to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. And going to act on it. And that's pretty much how it went both mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind sharing, and I again, I appreciate you inviting us into your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to just honor, like, if there are questions that I'm asking that feel too intrusive, you can say that. Okay. You don't have to. You don't have to share in that way. Um, but do you mind telling folks a little bit about, like, what it was like as you were struggling um, before you had the diagnosis and the language for what was going on, but you were having these thoughts and feelings, like what did things feel like for you as a 14 year old? I would say things were really hard because everyone knew that something was wrong, but no one knew what was wrong. So like, I know I would, I would come home and I would like, I do my homework and then I go straight to bed. It'd be 5 PM and I'd be in bed and then I'd be up all night and like every day be the same thing. And I shared a room with my little sister who is like almost 10 years younger than me. And we would fight constantly. Everything she did, like it wasn't like normal big sister fights. It was like, I was so mean to her. And like, like it was to the point where my mom even told me like she didn't want to share a room anymore because she was scared. Because she thought that I was like, she thought I was going to hurt her. I've never been violent, but I was so mean to her. And so... It was just kind of frustrating because, like, I knew something was wrong, but I did not have the language to, like, I didn't have, like, the language or anything to even say, like, hey, I think there's something, like, I think there's a mental health issue going on here. So it was just, like, something's wrong with me. I sleep all the time. I'm sad. I don't care about anything. I'm irritable. I have all this energy, like, but there was nothing, like, I knew nothing about, like, mental health at all to even like consider that that's what was going on with me. Mm. And so what finally helped get the diagnosis? Was it after the suicide attempt? Mm-hmm. Ah. It was a suicide attempt and I went to the hospital and yeah, I got the diagnosis in the hospital mm. inpatient. Yeah, it's I I again, I think it's important that we share what it looks like mm-hmm. with mental illness and and just helping people understand before you have the language, like sometimes people might say, oh, she's just being a teenager. She's just mm-hmm. being mean to her sister. But like your mom kind of felt like, oh, this is something more. Right. This is something that's more intense. Mm-hmm. Right. And that um, sometimes we don't go get help or we don't go ask for help because we just assume it's like, oh, it's kids being kids or we have a hunch that it's something a little bit more, but mm-hmm. we're nervous about seeking help. Yeah. And then the fact that I was like a 14 year old girl, everything at one point was just like chalked up to like, oh, it's just your your period or just like you're a normal teenage girl. So I feel like that could be the reason why it took so long mm. for me to get help because I was at that stage to where everything could be blamed on puberty mm. rather than like looking deeper into it. Yeah. So once you got the diagnosis, did they... Did they start you with therapy, medication? What helped you get stable? I started with therapy and medication, and they both helped. My only problem is I'm so, I was so bad at staying on medication. Like, it's so hard for me. I don't know why, but taking pills every day is the 
It was the worst thing for me. I could mm. not do it. Mm. What was hard? Like remembering or you just didn't like it, didn't um, want to? I would forget. Like at first I would forget. Um, and then after my suicide attempt in December, I so my suicide attempt, I took a lot of pills. So then after that, every time I took a pill, like every time I take a pill, it feels like I'm overdosing. So I don't want to take a pill every day. Mm. So... I switched to an injection. Okay. And is that helping? I love it. It's yeah. the best thing that's ever happened to me. Awesome. Awesome. So between 14 and your first attempt and diagnosis, and then now being 20, you had your second attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, how were things? Were you able to stay on your medication and things felt pretty stable? Or did you have your ups and downs? After my attempt in mm-hmm. December? No, your first one when you were oh. 14. Um. I stayed on my medication for a while because I was, I was, since I was only 14, my parents were giving me my medication. Okay. So my dad would give it to me morning and night. So I was stable on it until I turned like maybe 16 or 17. And then it was my responsibility to take it. And I just did not, part of me, like part of it was that I forgot. And the other part of me is that I, I did not want to take it. Like I did mm-hmm. not want to feel like I needed this medication to function. So I would not take it. And the, thing with bipolar disorder is and this is common where you take your medicine for a while and you feel good and then you're like oh I feel good I don't need this anymore and then you stop taking it and then you crash right and so I've done that a couple times a couple times (laughs) a couple times and so yeah I mean I would imagine a whole bunch of things go through your mind like you said I'm I'm doing well so I can stop Mm -hmm. right but I also wonder being a young black woman does that impact how you how you think about yourself and your mental health journey? Um, it does because I feel like I grew up with being told that like black women are strong, like, you know, that strong black woman and like the strong black woman doesn't need to take a pill every day. So like, what does that make me? And that kind of, I feel like that kind of hurt my self-esteem for a while and made me feel, I don't know, I guess just like inadequate, I would say just Feeling like I couldn't live up to that. Um, yeah. That's real. No, that's real. And I would say we don't we don't know that the strong black woman doesn't need a pill every day, right? Like right? A, this archetype that she can do everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not realistic, one. It's not. Totally not. And yeah, like you said, where's the room for, for her to need some sort of support? Mm-hmm. And there's no room for that with that, like with that idea. There's no room for you to need help. Any any kind of outside help, especially from like a medication. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I feel like we're shedding that a tiny bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but there's there's actually a story that I have students who are in my abnormal psychology class read. It's by Marie Danqua. It's called Willow Weep for Me. It's a book mm-hmm. about a black woman who is depressed. And she goes to see ther- goes to seek therapy, and it was hard for her to connect with her therapist because she felt like they weren't understanding her experience as a black woman. Mm. And even for them to even for her to wrap her mind around what does it mean to be depressed and be a black woman, so the strong black woman stuff came up for her. But then also that we we seem to characterize um, depression as like dark and black mm-hmm. and like this deep dark hole. And she's like, so how what is depression to me? I'm already black. I'm already right. right. Like so to this feeling of like even the way that we talk about it doesn't fit into into the black experience. Mm-hmm. What was your experience in therapy? 
Did it resonate with you? Did it help? I would say therapy. My two rounds of therapy were really good for me, actually. And I had Black women both times. And I think that that's why. They were, yeah, they were really good. Because I felt like I had someone who, when you have someone who looks like you, it makes it easier for you to open up more for Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. It made it easier for me to share more. It made it easier for me to receive what they were like telling me Mm -hmm. so i think having a black woman as a therapist really helped me Mm -hmm. yeah i hear that a a lot as well that 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 reflection back and it's not that like having a black woman therapist means that she'll understand everything about your life because we're not the same right um but that there's some things that you feel like maybe safer and opening up about Mm -hmm. and i felt like i just received like what they were giving me, I felt like I received it better coming from a black woman than I would have received coming from like a white woman or like I had a white male therapist once. I could not receive anything he gave me. Like everything he told me, I was just like, whatever. Mm, Really? I just, I don't know. There was just something about it. Like, and I'm sure what he said was good. Like I'm sure he knew what he was doing, but I felt like it was harder for me to receive therapy from him because I felt like there was that barrier. Hmm. So. so the advice he was giving you, you didn't really try or you didn't just didn't connect with him? I just didn't connect with him. And so because I didn't connect, I didn't really put my all into therapy. So I was just kind of sitting there like waiting for the sessions to be over. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And so in this time between 14 and 20, you mentioned having ups and downs. Mm-hmm. How... If you can think about adults in your life or people, just other relationships in your life that were really supportive of you along your mental health journey, what did that look like? What what was helpful? Um, I would say a lot. Like I have a very strong support system. Um, like my roommates, they helped me remember to take my medicine every day, mm. which I felt like was a way above and beyond what roommates need to do or have to do. So that was a big deal. Um, my dad is really supportive. He does everything he can, like like everything. Ugh, okay, he does everything that he can to like help me, to help me. So he like researches my like diagnosis to make sure he understands it. He's always there when I call him. He just does everything like way above and beyond. So I would say my support system has been very, very, very important to my journey. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. That's great that your dad is like seeking to educate himself and to know what's what and 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 to support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What about things that have been not so helpful? Um, I would say things that have been not so helpful. <laughs> it's funny because I just talked about my dad. Um, my dad has also been not so helpful because we're we're working on this. He just um. And he's gotten a lot better at this, but we struggled a lot because he would not understand. Like, I'd call him and I'd be crying. I'd be like, Dad, like, oh, my God, this happened at work. And he doesn't understand that because of my bipolar disorder, things that might just, like, tick people off just a little bit, they hit me, like, ten times harder. So, like, he would always, like, make it seem like I'm over-exaggerating. And which, like, to me— um, he's like, oh, it's not the end of the world, but I'm like, okay, but it is to me. So working on like, dad, just act like you understand that this is the end of the world. <laughs> and as well as um, 
trying to help him understand that me, like, going through a depressive episode and, like, falling back is not a symbol of me not able to be independent anymore. So every time I, like, relapse or, like, every time, like, when I had my suicide attempt, he's like, okay, maybe you need to move back home. And, like, trying to help him understand that, like, this does not mean that I'm not a responsible adult. And I think it's because of, like, my mental illness, it's it's harder for him to see me as an independent adult. And he views my setbacks as, like, reasons why I need him to swoop in and come save me. Mm. <laughs> and which, like, I, I need my dad. Like, I do. So, but also me, like, attempting suicide has no bearing on my ability to live on my own. So this the way in which he kind of jumps into parent mode and mm-hmm. wanting to take care and bring you back home and mm-hmm. right like that that might in some ways maybe even undermine your sense of independence. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like it's a delicate balance of like people being there for you, but not there for you in a way that makes you feel like you can't do for yourself. Exactly. Like realizing that there's a balance like I and that's what he's working on now like finding Mm -hmm. that perfect balance between like being a supportive dad and then like not being like a helicopter parent yeah I imagine it's pretty scary for him right I get it I'm not I'm not mad at him like I get it but you know we got to figure it out (laughs) (laughs) yes 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 yeah I mean as a parent I think about yeah I try to talk to my kids about taking care of their mental health and Right. But I I sometimes I don't know what to say. Did your family, did you all talk about mental health before your diagnosis? No. Okay. And then did that, do you feel like that made seeking treatment scarier or how did it impact you? I think it made it scarier just because I was like, I think it's similar to like when I got interested in like social justice where you like, you jump into this world with like all this new language that everyone knows and you're just you're just supposed to like get it if that makes sense so i felt like it was like one day i had no like no no knowledge of like mental health issues at all and then the next day i'm seeing therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists and they're asking me am i manic and like all these like questions that like I've never been asked before. Mm. And so I think it was really scary for me because it's like, okay, no one's ever asked me like how I'm feeling or I don't, I don't want to say they never asked me how I'm feeling, but like mental health wasn't a discussion in my house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so for those who don't understand the bipolar diagnosis, can you tell them a little bit about it and how you experience it? Um, So bipolar disorder, it basically means you get these episodes of both depression and mania and depression we know is like you know the not wanting to get out of bed you know no appetite you're tired you know we know depression and then mania is almost the opposite in the sense of it's it's high energy you have these grand ideas there's hypersexuality there's uh spending too much money just and just being impulsive and so when you have bipolar disorder you kind of go between those two and then you have like I don't want to say normal periods, but periods where your mood is like stable. Mm-hmm. So, And so for you, what does that look like? Like how long might your depressive episodes be or your manic episodes be? Um, I feel like my manic episodes are long. My manic episodes are longer than my depression episodes. My depression episodes will 
probably only last two or three days where I can be manic for like a week, week and a half. And my I feel like my manic episodes are worse than my depression episodes mm. just because both times I've attempted suicide, I was manic. Um, so I get, yeah. So it's, it feels scary. It's It's scary. Yeah. And so when you're stable on your medication, do you still have the episodes? I do. Uh-huh. Are they less intense? I would say sometimes they're less intense. I would just, I wouldn't even say they're less intense. I would say they're less frequent. Okay. So I, I definitely still get manic and depressive episodes, even on my shot, but mm-hmm. they don't come as often. And so how often might that be? Because you mentioned there's like a period where you're kind of stable. Um, I would say I probably get a manic episode like maybe every few weeks. And they're, they've been shorter mm-hmm. since I've been on my shot. Mm-hmm. Instead of lasting a week, they'll only last a day or two. And do you go right into a depressive episode or out of depressive episode to the mania? Or are they separate by um, these? I would say sometimes, sometimes I go from like, usually after I'm manic, I get depressed. But sometimes I'll just go like manic and then I'll be stable and then I'll be like manic again. Then I'll be stable and I'll get depressed. Like there's no really, there's no real pattern. There's no rhyme or reason to it. They just come when they come. Okay. But the pattern you have seen is that the suicidality is consistent with your manic episodes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hmm. How have your peers been? How have they responded to your mental health? Like my roommates or just friends, people around you. Like the reason I ask is sometimes people feel like um, folks treat them like they're fragile or they shun them yeah. when they know they have a diagnosis. I was going to say um, I'm, one thing I'm working on is like I do get treated like I'm fragile. Like I've been working on my roommates with telling them like if you have a problem with something, you can tell me. Don't worry about it if I cry. Like I don't want people to not call me out on my BS just because they're scared that I'm going to like go into a depressive state. Mm. And so that's something that I'm working on with my roommates and letting them know, like I can be wrong and I can cry. Like one thing that we've worked on is like telling them, I told them if they want to tell me something that I did wrong, text me. So that way when I cry, I'm not in front of you Mm. and you don't have to deal with like comforting me over something that I did wrong. Cause Mm -hmm. I know they're going to feel obligated to comfort me. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah. And you feel like they feel more obligated to comfort you because you have a history of mental Right, because they, they think I'm going to, like, try to kill myself, you know? Were you roommates with them when you had this last attempt? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. They took me to the hospital, so. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so it really does, it, it really does impact everyone around you. Right. And they probably have some fear. Right, so I get it. That's why we've tried the compromise with, like, okay, just... Text me if I do something wrong. And so that way I can deal with it mm-hmm. and have my emotions that I'm like, I'm going to have emotions. So that way I right. can have them in private versus you coming up to me and being like, okay, Maya, I don't like when you do that. And then I cry because I'm a crybaby. Mm-hmm. And then they feel bad and then they forget that like I was wrong in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can hear that as being a possible compromise. But also it's important for them to be able to, like you said, uh, not treat you like you're fragile. Mm-hmm. And so for them to be able to tell you and mm-hmm. for, and then for it to be able to hold your reaction and not mm-hmm. then feel like it's their fault. But exactly. right, like that's that comes with maturity, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah. Something you said in your post, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you were saying that before your last suicide attempt, when you took all the pills, mm-hmm. that you've been telling people for months that you were happy. 
Um, because I feel guilty telling people that I'm sad because I don't always have a reason to be sad. And like, I feel like I keep getting told like, you know, I'm not, I'm not homeless. I have food every day. I have a job or like, you know, whatever, all these things that I have that because of that, I can't be depressed. Who's telling you this? A lot of people. <laughs> like friends, people your age, Fr- older friends, people. parents, people, older people, just... People in your life. Just people in my life and just like also not even just people in my life, just like things that you see on social media that's like, why are you depressed? You like look at that guy who has no home. You know, like you see things like this and you're getting these... I'm I'm getting these messages that's saying that I have it too good to be depressed. I don't have a reason to be depressed. I didn't just lose my job. My house didn't burn down. Why am I depressed? Okay. I don't have a reason to be depressed. That's really frustrating. So as a person who, you know, it's a mental health professional, like you can be depressed. You can be depressed. (laughs) You get to be depressed, right? Like that, that Oprah can be depressed. People with all sorts of money and power and influence still get depressed. And that doesn't mean that, that, that it's not worthy and that it really is a a neurological chemical experience. Mm -hmm. It's not just precipitated by a loss, although it can be. I know you know this. I guess I just want to be another voice in your head to say, you get to be depressed. I needed that. (laughs) I was was hoping that we were beyond that in society. Doesn't sound like we are. We're not. (laughs) And is this coming from like, not not just black folks, but like people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds, mm-hmm. all ages, all, all just variety of people. Just, just oh. it's there's always a reason for why like I can't be. I feel like there's I'm always given a reason for why I can't be depressed, and like I don't know. Like part of me gets that thinking positively does help, but also like you can't like look at the sunshine your way out of depression. Like you just can't do it. Nope. You can be grateful Mm -hmm. and still be depressed. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting. So leading up to this last attempt, you just felt like you had to say that you were happy because you were tired of arguing with people about Mm -hmm. being depressed. And and I had no, like I could not, I felt like because I couldn't explain why I was depressed that I couldn't say that I was depressed. That makes sense. Like I was not like I know if I'm if I said I'm depressed, someone was gonna be like, "Why?" And I was gonna be like, "I don't know." Like I call my dad all the time, and I'm like, "Hi, daddy." And he's like, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "I'm sad." And he's like, "Why?" And I'm like, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. And and when I every time I say I don't know, I feel bad. So it's just easier to just be like, "No, I'm fine." Mm. Do you have a therapist right now that you're talking to? I do not. I'm looking for a therapist. Okay. Yeah, because it feels really important for. For you to have someone, for anyone to have someone to talk to without having to feel like they have to qualify it. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like you get to be sad. Period. Mm. So how long did you have the plan to take the pills? I didn't. It was, I had no plan. It was, it was impulsive. It was like, I had thought about, like, I was like, I want to kill myself, but like, I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. I literally just like woke up from a nap, called off work, and took the pills. Really? Yeah. That fast? That fast. Hmm. That's intense. Yeah, it was, I was really manic. Mm-hmm. And so how many days had you been feeling manic before this day where you just woke up and took the pills? Probably about a week. 
And I think I mentioned something to my roommate about not feeling well a week before. Mm-hmm. And like them, like we're trying to troubleshoot, like trying to figure out what I could do. Cause I was like, I didn't want to go to inpatient. Mm. And then a week later I'm in inpatient. So right. That. <laughs> right. How has it been navigating care? Um, it used to be really hard, but recently I've, um, discovered a new way of treatment that doesn't include inpatient. Yeah. And my birth mom, she lives on a farm. Mm-hmm. And so what I did when I had my last like really, really bad depressive episode is I took a week off work and I just went to her farm and I just, just took a break from like everything mm-hmm. and just got to talk to my mom and live the farm life. And so I've been doing that when I've had my depressive episodes. I've just been going there and just taking a break because I realized a lot of what I need is just a break. Mm-hmm. And I can get that break without like going to inpatient and becoming a ward of the state for three to five days. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that's something that people often that keeps people from saying that they're suicidal is because they don't want to end up in inpatient. Inpatient's horrible. I'm is not it? a fan. I'm really? not a fan. What's it's, horrible about it? Um, I feel like you're treated more like a criminal than like a person who's like seeking help. Like just the I don't know. The the rules are odd. The like none of the rules make sense. Like what? You can't have tampons in there. I don't know why. But I don't like, that's just the one rule that sticks out to me. You can't have tampons. Are they worried people tie the string together and hurt themselves? I don't know. The strings are really small. It takes a lot of tampons <laughs> to, like, do anything. Absolutely. I'm just try- I'm trying to get, oh, wrap my mind around that. Yeah. So, like, just things, just, but things like that. Like, the, uh-huh. the rules are just odd. Like, they don't make sense. And my thing with rules is I can follow rules if, like, someone can explain them to me. And there's no explanation of any rule. It's just because we said so. And then if you ask any questions, then you're like, you're resisting. And everything you do, they chart it. So like, if I'm like asking too many questions and the nurse takes that as like me having an attitude, oh, my, it's irritable. Maybe it's her medicine. So like everything, everything you do, like they nitpick everything you do in inpatient. Mm. And just, I don't know. And every inpatient isn't like that. Like, there's some good places, there's some bad places, but I don't, I'm not a big fan of it. Yeah. Well, I can see why you'd want to avoid it. That's not to say that you shouldn't go to inpatient if you need help. If you need it. And there are alternatives. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, and it sounds like you've had enough years in your diagnosis, you realize that it's about staying on your medication and having therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for you, if if it's working for you to get back on track by going to the farm and taking a break for, from things rather than inpatient, you have your diagnosis, you have your injection, right? Mm-hmm. And you're working on finding a therapist. So you mm-hmm. have those pieces in place. Yeah. And I was going to say like inpatient isn't the worst thing because it is good for keeping you safe. It like, is. So like, I don't I don't want to write it off completely because especially like I know when I'm manic inpatient is kind of hopeful in the sense of like I am somewhere where I like you're somewhere where you can't hurt yourself. Right. It's just some of the rules are 
really bad. <laughs> I I really appreciate you just saying the fact that yes, impatient is a place that keeps you safe. <laughs> because there have been times where I've had friends or supported other friends with friends who mm-hmm. are suicidal and it it's it's a it's a fear to kind mm-hmm. of give over like you said you're you're there involuntarily for some time. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you know, if somebody says you're going to harm yourself, and you don't willfully go, right. right? You can be forced to be an inpatient. So it sounds big, bad, and scary. And did you know that when you get like that, the involuntary, like the 72 hour hold, it doesn't count weekends. So if you go there on a Friday and mm-hmm. they put you on a 72 hour hold, yeah. your 72 hours, like you'd be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but Saturday and Sunday won't count. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So then you're there until what, Tuesday? Tuesday. And that's just hoping it's not a holiday. Because if Monday's a holiday. Then that's another day. Really? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the worst part. I got a 72-hour hold on a Friday. And so, like, they were like, I was like, oh, okay, I'll be out of here by Monday. And they're like, no, 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 Saturday and Sunday don't count. And I was like, but I'm here. Like, that's, you're holding me. Right. I'm on the medicine. Yeah. So, like, that's just a weird thing. That is. Huh. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you had to give other advice to folks, to young people who are experiencing their own mental health challenges, what advice would you give to them? Um, I would give two pieces of advice. And I would say the first one would be to like, please get help, like in whatever way that looks like for you, whether it's going to your parents, your counselor, a therapist, a, anybody, just, I think it's better. Like getting help is scary. But the rewards to getting help definitely outweigh the, like, the nervousness and the scariness that you feel when getting it. And I would also say to write, um, like, write what you feel. Also, like, documenting, like, how you feel and when you feel it could be very helpful for, like, your diagnosis and, like, figuring out, like, if they're, you know, figuring out what's wrong when you document, like, I felt like this when this happened or I feel like this on here and here and just, yeah, just writing down things. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what I remember when I was reading your post that I felt like part of why I wanted you to come and share is that you were so honest about the attempt and saying that you had suicidal thoughts and that you had this attempt. And then you were also so honest about the fact that you're happy to be alive. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes people, you know, will will lean on the side of like, if someone's going to commit suicide, it's their choice. You know, don't give people a hard time who are trying to commit suicide. And, you know, I, I get that you don't want to shame people mm-hmm. for feeling how they're feeling. And I also think it's important for us to tell the stories of folks who've come through that mm-hmm. and say, and I'm glad it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it was important for people to know that like, there are people who, like you said, like who've been through like the worst and then can come out of it better, stronger, happier. And just letting people know that like this doesn't also like I feel like it was good to hear it from someone that people know versus seeing it on TV. Like you can see that like Demi Lovato did this, but it's like, oh, OK, like she's a celebrity. She has all this. And it's different to hear from like, oh, this is Maya Petty, who I went to high school with, who I met in Ferguson, who I like whatever. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I appreciate you being honest and sharing and being open 
um, I'm glad you're still here because I know you have amazing things to do. And that I, part of what I wanted you to maybe close us out and sharing is some of what you want to do. Like, I know you did great work with STL Lunch and you have a real passion for young people. Mm-hmm. Where are you headed next? Right now? I don't know. I'm, I have a, I have a lot of plans and just a lot of, what I really want to do is I want to bring back the lunch program. Um, I want to go back to school. I hope to own my own preschool. I also have decided I want to write a book. I want to write my life story, but through a collection of short stories. Um, so I'm working on that. So there's a, there's things happening. That's <laughs> awesome. I'm excited for you. You're just at the right age to be seeding those dreams and plans. And I have no doubt that you'll you'll do what you set out to do. Thank you. I look forward to when that preschool opens. Oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> if folks wanna follow you or hear more about you, find out more about you, how can they find and follow you? Um, my Facebook is Maya Petty, that's M-Y-A-P-E-T-T-Y. Um, YouTube channel is Maya and Miles, that's M-Y-A and Miles. Um, and from my Facebook, you can find my Twitter and everything. So you can find me there. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. And thank you all for joining me on Raising Equity, where we really do try to model having conversations that might seem hard, but are so necessary. Young people in our society have a lot to say. They also have a journey that we need to learn from and listen to. So I appreciate you for joining us. Come back next time on Raising Equity.